Hi guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Rasa. And welcome to another episode of a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Episode 108. And uh, back in Canada, because we've done Canada before, but not this season. Right. So uh, we've done Canada a couple times throughout the history of the podcast. Yeah. But we're back there. Do you want to sing their anthem? (laughs) No. (laughs) You can refer back to one of our past episodes to hear Laura singing the anthem. (laughs) This is truth. Uh, but our friend, I think Georgette recommended Canada. No, this was Kristen, right? Oh, I don't, I can't remember. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this one was Kristen to shout out to her. I think Belize was Georgette last week. Oh, but we, we are not choosing our countries. No. Our listeners and our friends and people around us have given us all the suggestions. So Canada it is. Yeah. And you can keep sending us suggestions. Uh, we want to hear from listeners to see what countries they're interested in. Uh, so I'm going to do this backwards, but you can send suggestions to our email at tap on the podcast at gmail.com. And you can check out our Instagram and our Twitter for pictures from this week's episode, as well as some exciting pictures from what we're about to talk about in just a few seconds, but uh, you find us on social media at a tap on the wrist. Yes. And you can DM us there as well with any ideas or leave a comment on one of our posts. Uh, I, we always do that the opposite way. That's why I said I was doing it backwards. It's usually it social media. <laughs> it doesn't feel natural. So last week we said we were going to talk about Chicago because uh, we thought we would be in person, but we aren't recording in person. But it's okay. We're still going to talk about it. <laughs> I feel like we recorded season two, our season about Chicago, 15 years ago. I know. I know. It feels so long ago. But it was a great season. And it was funny being in Chicago and Laura and I went on a crime tour where they talked a lot about like Al Capone and Every time the tour guide said something, Laura and I were like, yep, yes, we know. We know. <laughs> yes. So we did get to go to some cool places in Chicago, not everywhere we wanted, um, because it was also my birthday weekend and we were celebrating with friends, but we did get to fit in some places. Like we went to the Exchequer, which we talked about in one of our episodes, uh, as a place that Al Capone used to hang out. Uh, and that was really cool. I got to eat deep dish pizza there. So that was exciting for me. Um, but it was just kind of cool to be in, you know, a restaurant bar that we had talked about, um, on the podcast for that season. And, uh, we, we did notice that the root, the ceiling was a little low because that is the bar where they have the drop roof or drop ceiling because there's like an old, uh, like a parlor upstairs where like Al Capone used to hang out and it's kind of like you know, old and kind of falling apart. So they covered it up, which I, I kind of wish they had like a little peak hole that you could like look up into. I um, wish they could just renovate it. So we, could yeah. It. Yeah. Um, but either way, it was very cool to be there. Um, we did also go, like I said, on a true crime tour where we got to see some pretty cool places. I don't know if you, if you want to well, do some we, of the, we, 
Yeah, yeah, we got to see the site of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which is like a parking lot. (laughs) It's oddly unremarkable. Yeah. Um, It's actually very sad that there's no historical marking or anything to commemorate that location. It literally is a parking lot next to some townhomes. Yeah. There's no, there's no plaque marking the site you would walk by it a thousand times and never know but our tour did stop there we got off we got to see it um but there was like you could see like the black line of the roof of the garage where the saint Valentine's day massacre happened do you remember there was like that that they had they had torn down the building Yeah. yeah Yeah, uh, and that was basically all you could see was that like one line on a on a brick wall. Um, but it it is weird that they don't commemorate it in any way, uh, considering how big of an event it was. Um, where else did we go? We did get to see uh, the church mm-hmm. that we Holy mentioned, Trinity? Holy Trinity Church, that we mentioned mm-hmm. quite a few times. It was the site of many of the the bigger funerals. Mm-hmm. And I also sat across the street from Dino Banyan's flower shop, which is no longer a flower shop, but we right. got to kind of see it as it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it really surprised me while Chicago holds on to its, you know, gangster mobster history, like in every gift shop you go to, every Italian restaurant you go to, it's full of memorabilia these historic sites have all been torn down or renovated mm-hmm. or changed and with nothing to commemorate that. Them. Right. Yeah. I don't understand that. It is very weird. Um, it, it, you know, like I said, we did this tour, but yeah, a lot of the tour was just kind of like stories. Pass- yeah. Stories and passing by sites where things used to be, um, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Especially because it's like such a big story. Yeah. We did stop at one restaurant. Oh, yes. Which wasn't Capone really. I think it was Nitty's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Nitty's Hangout. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of cool. We It was like a, a, a rest stop break for us on the yeah. tour. But you got to go downstairs into the basement and the walls were lined with like original newspaper clippings and photos and autographs and lots of memorabilia from mm-hmm. that time. So we'll definitely share some pictures from that. Yeah. And then we got to see like an underground tunnel mm-hmm. that was used for like escape routes and to keep, you know, safety deposit boxes underneath this restaurant and so I think we both have pictures. We'll post some of those. So, I mean, there were some very cool aspects of it, but I kind of wish Chicago had preserved a little bit more of that history. For sure. Even, I agree. Even though it's bad history. or like <laughs> Criminal history. Criminal history. And like they kind of own up to it. They're like, oh, we're still corrupt. We're still full of criminals. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know, maybe that's why it's not history because it's still ongoing. I guess. I mean, like you said, it's it's just weird because, like, I walked into a store and got a Capone shirt. Like, it's just, it's weird because it's like they own up to some of it, but not all of it. And, yeah, I guess maybe part of it is because, you know, there's still 
a lot of that criminal activity still happening, but it's just weird. It's still weird. Yeah. But we had a great time. We did. We, you know, we did a couple other things. We went to a medieval torture museum because we just love all things crime related. And that was really great. Highly recommend if you're in Chicago. Mm-hmm. We did a donut tour, donut architecture tour. tour. We had lots of great cocktails. We did have some good cocktails uh, that we, oh, and one of them had, um, we talked about, I said this last week actually, had the um, the same alcohol that's in the Caparina. Oh, Cachaca. Cachaca. Yes, that had cachaca yeah. in it. But we went to a great tiki bar. We went to mm-hmm. a historic hotel bar and had great cocktails. We I, we just, it was a good weekend. Full it of, was. But it wasn't as Capone filled as I had hoped because there, there's not a lot left. Yeah, for sure. So that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. But what's not a bummer is Canada. <laughs> oh, Canada. Oh, oh Canada. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's probably parts of Canada that are that are bummer, just like everywhere else in the world. But our stories are pretty great. <laughs> yes. So we're sorry we went on so long about Chicago. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> but uh, we're ready to talk about Canada, and we hope you enjoy the stories. Enjoy. Canada. Canada. Oh, Canada. (laughs) Yeah, we've done this theme before. So it was like, I wanted to obviously tell a different story. And when I was researching, I found this very obscure piece of Canadian history. And then I love love obscure pieces of history. (laughs) (laughs) And then I found it had an alcohol component. So I was like, perfect, done, great. But I have to be honest, it's much more about the history than the alcohol. But the alcohol does play a big part. As long as there's a tie-in. There is a tie-in. Okay. So the SS Beaver. (laughs) Nothing has ever sounded more Canadian. (laughs) Starting off strong with the Canadian The SS Beaver steamship holds the distinction of being the first steamship in the North Pacific Ocean. And for many years, it was actually promoted as the first steamship on the Pacific Ocean period. But then some researchers found claims to earlier steamships down near South America. So now our girl, the Beaver, (laughs) is just (laughs) the first steamship in Northwest Pacific Ocean. Okay. Okay. Um, And so, even though this episode is all about Canada, and obviously the beaver is very Canadian, uh, her story actually starts in the UK. She was built at Blackwall Hall in London for the Hudson Bay Company in 1835. And then... To get her from the UK to Vancouver, which is like the far like western side of Canada, they decided to sail her there. I was going to say they sailed her. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not a sailboat. She's a steamboat. Oh, right. 
but they decided to sail her there. So they first built her as a sailboat uh, and they sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. And 1835 is pre-Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. So she actually had to sail all the way south before heading back north again. So she departs uh, the UK on August 29th of 1835, heads towards North America uh, and she's retrofitted with two or twin-masted s- sails. And they make their way across the ocean. She's 100 feet long and 20 feet wide. On November 11th, so three months later, they reach the Falkland Islands. Then they round the Cape of Good Horn a week after that. And on February 1st of 1836, they see Hawaii. But it's not until April 10th when the SS Beaver actually arrives at the Hudson Bay Company's Fort Vancouver. So it took eight months to sail from the UK to Vancouver. That is a long voyage. It is a long voyage. Uh, Once she arrived in Vancouver, uh, the Beaver then was turned from a sail boat into a steamship. She had her paddles added to the back, boilers and engines connected under deck. It said the paddles rotated at 30 times a minute and she could sail almost 10 miles per hour, which was. I was actually going to ask like what, what made it a steamship as opposed to a sailboat. So I'm glad you. Oh yeah. We're there. Glad you covered that. Yeah, I actually have a little bit more description of that in, like, a sentence or two. Okay. Um, But, like, that idea was just so wild to me that they were, like, we're going to sail her across, like, make her a sailboat and then turn her into a steamship. Like, no one was making steamships on the side of the world. They were, like, like, you know what? We can just build it here. (laughs) Yeah. Like, eight months and the money it cost – to like outfit a crew and everything to get there. Like supplies for eight months. Yeah. It blows my mind that that was the best option, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know anything about steamboats in 1835. So steamboats at the time had a steam engine, which could turn the paddle wheel in the back of the boat. And some steamboats had two paddle wheels, which would make them even faster. But the beaver only had one. Um, and so it's these paddle wheels that would like push the boat forward up and down the river and it worked much faster than a sailboat, which had to rely on wind going the right direction. Mm -hmm. So she could work no matter the weather. And that's what they really needed in that part of the world at that time. So, as I mentioned, with this conversion to a steamship, the SS Beaver becomes the first steamer in the Northern Pacific Ocean. And she is working up and down the rivers between Canada, Alaska, and the Northern United States. And serving the entire Pacific Northwest for more than half a century. And she's really, really important to things like the fur trade and the gold rush during those time periods. Mm -hmm. So she basically operated as a floating trading post, moving from like small town to small town, supplying the people who were exploring all of these 
inhabited areas with the goods they needed to continue their hunting or gold rushing expeditions. Um, and it really is how, you know, like the idea of like raccoon hats and beaver <laughs> pelts and, you know, like all of these fur trading um, that kind of is a little bit iconic for Canada right. was able to happen. Uh, and she was the first boat to do it. So Thanks to our good friend, the SS Beaver. The SS Beaver. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then during the, the gold rush, which we in America focus a lot on the California gold rush, but they were also doing it up and down the coast of Vancouver. And again, served as a floating trading post, being able to buy the gold or even supply food and, you know, back and forth so that people could continue in these wilderness areas. In 1843, they established Fort Victoria, which becomes a very large standing trading post in um, Vancouver. And it's owned by the Hudson Bay Company. And it's, I guess, if you're from that part of Canada, it's kind of a very historic landmark. But it's because of the SS, the SS Beaver that they were able to get to that area and supply it regularly for the people in that part of Vancouver. Okay. She was also known to carry like dignitaries such as the governor back and forth from the colony of Vancouver to other smaller areas um, and like in between the like islands and the mainland. So she had quite a reputation. Good enough for the governor. Good enough for anybody. Um, <laughs> and mostly during her first like 15 years in service, she was just a goods supplier. Um, but in 1858, she became a passenger ship ferrying miners to, um, like the mouth of rivers where they were like going digging for coal and things mm -hmm. like that. So they outfitted her for passenger to be a passenger steamship. When you said carrying miners, I thought you meant children. <laughs> No. <laughs> Until your next sentence. <laughs> there are probably kids on board too, but coal miners. Oh. Uh, and then even in later years, the British military um, borrowed the SS Beaver to uh, help charter the and survey the coast of like the colony of British Columbia. So on the, you know, they were trying to decide who owned all of those different islands and lands. And the SS Beaver was a big part um, with the Royal Navy. And that happens in about the 1860s. Uh, she also assisted in a couple of wars by ferrying both soldiers and goods mm -hmm. back and forth um, to the aid of both Canada and um Really, like, whoever needed help in the Pacific Northwest, but British Columbia, mainly, okay. and the Royal Navy. But by the mid-1880s, the beaver had much larger competition. You know, technology had grown. Things like steam engines had gotten fancier, and it just, she was just, you know outdone so they, they probably learned how to build ships in canada <laughs> yeah yeah uh and so she gets sold 
to the British Columbia Towing and Transportation Company in 1874. And she begins her new life as a tugboat, uh, mainly tugging like lumber and coal and like boats around different bays and sounds as they're coming in from larger trading duties. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she does that for the next 15 or so years. But she makes her final voyage on July 25th of 1888. At this point, she's in Calamity Point, which is in Vancouver. And the story goes that she was going on a journey that evening when the crew realized that they were running low on whiskey (gasps) how tragic tragic and uh they decided that instead of continuing their journey to their destination they needed to turn around return back to where they left from fill up on whiskey and then start the journey again i mean however can you blame them (laughs) yeah however upon trying to turn around the SS Beaver crashed onto the rocks. Oh no! Ending ending her journey as a vessel. So I have a couple firsthand accounts of what happened that night. Um, a Vancouver pioneer named Simpson reported that the Beaver's captain Marchant was an old drunk, and that the crew were all drunk the night the Beaver went on the rocks. So they ran out of whiskey because they drank all the whiskey. <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't mention that the, all of the history says that the crew was drunk that night. And that's why they made the poor decision to try and turn around in this narrow sound that they couldn't have turned around in. I just but see whatever. all these drunk sailors being like, we need more whiskey. Turn around. <laughs> turn around. Um, another steamship who happened to be nearby, the SS Muriel, came to the beaver's rescue. Um, They tried to pull her off the rocks to try and like tow her into the, the like the nearest inlet, but they were unable to remove her from the rocks. She had like really gone ashore, Mm -hmm. but all the crew managed to get off of the SS beaver safely. And there were no deaths or anything except for the, the ship itself. Yeah. Um, Another report that night (laughs) says, and this one's from A.W. LePage, who was good friends apparently with the captain and had like got this report secondhand, says that Marchant, Captain Marchant, said the passengers on the boat were going back to their logging camp and some of them were pretty well lit up and they had forgotten their liquor call it booze if you want to. And they asked the captain to turn back to Vancouver so that they could get their supply. So he turned back and when turning back, he ran ashore. So he says he wasn't drunk. It was by the passenger's demand that he turned around. Hmm. But he was his friend. So yeah. 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 Um, How long was this? Do we know how long this voyage was supposed to be? Like, like a day. So they would have just, Got more whiskey the next day if they had been yeah. patient. <laughs> they would have just had to like go the rest of the night. Like they were going to make it the next day. 
Oh it my was, God. <laughs> it was one of those like one of those like coal mining or logging voyages where they were taking the people who had been out working back to the mainland. Uh-huh. And they like left all their booze at the work site and they were like, turn around. <laughs> Or vice versa. I don't know which direction they were going, but. Yeah, yeah. But it was a very I, short voyage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and then on one site I found there are historians that believe that the weather played a part in uh, the beaver's demise. And this is what the Daily News advertiser, like, news reported on July 28th of that year. They reported the wind was blowing pretty fresh and with the strong tide running carried the famous old craft onto the rocks just at the entrance to the narrows. Um, They say that foggy conditions went on to be part of the demise as well. But part of me wonders if that's because she was so historical that like it being like this long historic run because of some drunken sailors is so sad. I know. They're like, they're like, no, no, no. It was the weather. I mean, sure. There could have been weather that played a factor, but I'm sure it mostly had to do with people being drunk. Right. So here she is, the SS Beaver stuck upon the rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, she becomes a popular attraction. For- oh, like you could still... See, like it didn't sink; it just stayed. No, on the she rocks. like she like ran ashore okay. on the rocks. Yeah, uh, it becomes a popular tourist attraction and site for souvenir seekers, and they would like get down to the boat and strip everything they could away from her as like no. a souvenir. I know that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, she sat there for over four years, but in 1892, a large steamship called the SS Yosemite was traveling the same route and the wake of the SS Yosemite actually like knocked the beaver loose from the rocks Uh and she sunk right there. Oh, so she did sink. (laughs) Yeah. And so that happened in 1892, July of 1892. And she's now at the bottom of this bay or for many years was, and it was a popular scuba diving site. Uh, you were no longer permitted to go through the wreck and like take things because it was a heritage site. Mm-hmm. Um, and they even put a plaque commemorating the site of the sinking and where she stood on the rocks for all those years. However, in the 1990s, they did like an official underwater archaeological like dive mm-hmm. of the SS Beaver and she's mostly disintegrated because it was a fully ship and just with the currents of the narrows and it being wood, it's all pretty much rotted and disintegrated. That's so sad. So she no longer lives, but it turns out that British Columbians couldn't get enough of the SS Beaver. So 74 years after she sank, it was announced that they would build a replica like an identical Mm -hmm. of the SS Beaver. And they did that in 1966. And for decades, the, the Beaver too, as they (laughs) called it, um, would go on to like be at all kinds of festivals and parades and like 
be a historical like museum for kids to go and see the first steamship in the area. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in oh, 2014, no. she too would run aground and sink. And she now currently sits 120 feet below water in Cowichan Bay. Uh, and they do have pictures of the beaver too. It's like almost completely upright, just mm-hmm. 120 feet under the water. I mean, third time's a charm. Beaver three. I, maybe. <laughs> so uh, it's just kind of like this fascinating story about the first steamship in the Pacific Northwest that had like this tragic demise because of alcohol. I know. How cool would it have been for that ship to actually be preserved if drunk sailors didn't want more whiskey? I know. Uh, there are pieces of it in like maritime museums mm-hmm. in the area um, that like people have given back to the museum or that divers were able to recover, mm-hmm. but like very little of the original SS Beaver is seen. Like her anchor is in a, a the maritime museum in British mm-hmm. Columbia. Um but very little is left of her. Uh, I do have a couple sources, and I think these sources titles are one of my favorite parts. Yay. Okay. Beaver, the first steamship on Puget Sound, arrives at Fort Nisqually on November 12, 1836. That was from historylink.org, an article written by David B. Williams. Okay. And then on vancouveristawesome.com, I found an article, The Steam That Built Vancouver, The Tale of the SS Beaver. And then here's my favorite. Okay. And this is from the Maritime Museum of British Columbia. What to do with a drunken sailor, the SS Beaver. Love it. So, <laughs> I mean, that's the story of, of the beaver. Poor beaver. I know. I can't believe the second one sank, too. Oh, man, that was a good one. Yeah. All right. So today I am going to be doing some Canadian bar history. Talking is the best. It is. I'm talking specifically about the Old Angel Inn. It is both a pub and has accommodations, hence the inn part of the name. Um, It has five rooms above the pub, as well as a two-bedroom cottage adjacent to the pub named the Swayze Cottage, which is a name you're going to want to remember. Okay. Uh, The tagline on the website says it's probably, in quotes, the best pub in the world. Probably the best pub in the world. Okay. (laughs) Some would say. Uh, So the Old Angel Inn is located on Regent Street in the heart of Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario. It's located five blocks away from Fort George and is about 25 kilometers from Niagara Falls. Don't know what that means because we use miles, but... (laughs) (laughs) I could have converted it, but I didn't. Um, The inn is said to be one of the oldest pubs in Ontario, Uh, And it has been reported as one of the oldest buildings in Canada, though that is slightly questionable because it has been rebuilt, but we'll get there. The pub has authentic British British pub fare and draft ales uh, featuring a menu filled with British authentic homestyle cooked food like shepherd's pie. Delicious. I'm here for those. Uh, And again, they described it as 
probably the best food in the world. <laughs> just... Okay. <laughs> they don't want to make the claim because then <laughs> you got to hold up to it. But exactly. Probably. Exactly. They also have an English beer garden so you can enjoy the outdoors. And the inn is so British that instead of flying a Canadian maple leaf flag, they fly a British Union Jack flag outside. Okay. The website for the pub invites you to experience it all by saying, please come in and enjoy our hearty food, cozy rooms, and endless hospitality. Who knows? You may even have a run-in with our resident ghost, Captain Colin Swayze. Oh. So yes, it is a haunted pub and inn, which is my favorite kind of pub and inn. I know. This is like a Halloween treat in June. I know. Um, And so the British flag that I mentioned isn't just there because it's an English pub. It is there to appease the ghost of Captain Swayze. Oh, okay. You have no idea how many times. angry. No. You want to respect his culture. Also, you have no idea how many times I almost wrote Patrick Swayze. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's not right. That's not right. Although if Patrick Swayze's ghost was there, it would be interesting. <laughs> it would be. It would be a good story, too. <laughs> oh, man. So a little bit about the history of the pub and inn. Uh, it was believed to have been founded as the Harmonious Coach House on land that was granted to the Deputy Surveyor General around 1789. At the time, the town was called Newark. And it would eventually become the first capital of Upper Canada, but it was renamed Niagara on the Lake in 1902. So the Inn's website says that records back during its original history were kind of sketchy, which makes sense. It was a long time ago, but there are a couple of noteworthy historical ties to the Inn. So firstly, in 1793, the new assembly passed an act outlawing slavery And it was the first law of its kind enacted anywhere in the world. And it was believed that the legislators then went to celebrate uh, over dinner at the inn. So pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, They've hosted several historical figures, such as John Graves Simcoe, who was the first lieutenant governor, uh, Alexander Mackenzie, the explorer, Prince Edward, who's the father of the future Queen Victoria, and Thomas More, the Irish national poet. Lastly, uh, they noted that General Sir Isaac Brock's aide, John McDonnell, reportedly died at the inn in agony from wounds he received at the Battle of Queenston Heights on October 13th, 1812. Uh, And for those who don't know who Sir Isaac Brock is, like me, he was a British army officer and and colonial administrator uh, who made a name for himself during the War of 1812. It's so funny when we do these stories in other countries because it's like, I mean, Prince Edward is obviously where Prince Edward Island comes from. But like, yeah. So, like, if you are Canadian, yeah. Yeah. That sounded weird coming out. (laughs) It sounded weird coming out. Canadian is correct. Uh, these names are like our George Washington's, right. like Thomas Jefferson's, but like we read it during research and I'm like, am I supposed to know who this person is? Like this, like John Graves Simcoe was the first Lieutenant governor. Like that probably, yeah. Like to us would be like George Washington stayed here, you know, but we're yeah. just like, who? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, sorry to Canadians, which is how you say it. <laughs> I think it's because earlier I said Canadia and I, <laughs> it's wrong. So when I said it again, I thought it was wrong again. Oh, man. It's like the closest country to us. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you did that. So unfortunately, during the War of 1812, the inn was badly burned. Uh, hence why it needed to be rebuilt. Uh, and why I said it was a little questionable that it was one of the oldest buildings in uh, Canada. But it was rebuilt in 1815, so still, you know, a decent amount of time ago, by a man named John Ross. Uh, and according to the Inn's website, he named it the Angel Inn in a tender reference to his wife. So sweet. Mm. <laughs> if anyone ever named a pub after me and called it the Angel Inn, I'd be like, I don't want that. <laughs> You'd be no. like, I'm no angel. <laughs> um. To this day, you can still see the exposed hand-hewn beams and thick plank floors that were laid in 1815. So still very historic looking, yeah. Uh, in 1826, the inn was purchased by a man named Richard Howard, who also operated the Promenade House or Howard's Hotel down the street. Again, I was like, do I should I know what this place is? So I'm, maybe Canadians that live in the area do. Uh, the inn turned hand turned hands again in 1845 when it was purchased by John Fraser, who called it the Mansion House. Uh, he then renamed it to Fraser's Hotel and eventually reverted the inn back to its earlier name of the Angel Inn. Uh, and of course, they eventually added the olds to the name to, you know, show that it was old. Old. <laughs> <laughs> Self-explanatory. Uh, throughout its history, the inn has served as a library, an apothecary shop, a stop for traveling dentist, and a billet or military quarters for British officers on colonial duty. Duty? Duty. <laughs> on colonial duty. <laughs> Apparently, we can't speak today. Did you say a stop for dentist? Traveling dentist. Yeah. That's an oddly specific <laughs> occupation. <laughs> Back in the day, I guess they weren't common. They had to travel around to treat people's <laughs> dental needs. I would have been screwed if I had to wait for a traveling dentist to come by. Anyone who knows me knows I have a lot of I have a lot of dental issues. I would have had to become a dentist to treat myself. <laughs> so it's of course changed owners several times, and the most recent owners that I could find were from 2015. So they might still be the owners: uh, Nancy Penman and Barry Williams. But let's get to what we are all here for. The ghost. Captain Swayze. Captain Swayze, not Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is actually a plaque outside of the door of the pub that says, quote, local folklore has it that the inn is haunted by the ghost of a British soldier killed at the old inn during the war of 1812. He is said to walk the inn cellars after dark, never visiting the upper floors. So long as the Union Jack flies above the inn's door. Okay. So the legend of Captain Colin Swayze's haunting has shown up in accounts dating back to the 1820s, uh, where it was reported in local newspapers. So it's not like just a new thing that the owners made up. It's been reported since the 1800s. 
And according to the Inn's website, he was an unfortunate Canadian militia officer who was killed at the Inn during the American invasion of May of May 1813. And it all happened because of love, of course. So Captain Swayze had delayed joining the British retreat in order to have a rendezvous with his true love, the innkeeper's daughter. The pair were unfortunately surprised by American soldiers who were sent to search the inn. <laughs> the website said the invaders. <laughs> <laughs> so weird to see Americans written that way. Um, so Captain Swayze decided to hide in an empty barrel in the cellar of the pub. But unfortunately for him, the American soldiers stuck bayonets into every possible hiding spot that they could find, including these barrels. Uh, and so poor Captain Swayze received a fatal wound from one of those bayonets and died. Damn. Yeah, it's a bummer. Uh, and it's, of course, believed that he never left and that he roams the inn at night looking for his lost love. However... It's worth noting that TorontoGhost.org offers a different version of the story as told by the soldiers who had survived the battle. They said that it was common knowledge that a store of Navy rum was kept at the inn and that the good captain was denying the Americans any victory party with the British rum. So according to them, there was no lover. There was just a lot of booze and he did not want them to have it. Oh, and they they killed him for that. And they killed him because they wanted their booze. It's almost wow. worse than ruining a ship. You just kill someone because <laughs> you want booze so bad. Um, but yes, either way, Swayze uh, was killed, and that it was when the soldiers then torched the inn. So that was when the inn burned down, and then eventually had to be rebuilt. So in terms of what Captain Swayze does, it's pretty typical haunting stuff. So people have reported noises coming from empty dining room, uh, rearranged play settings, objects being moved over 10 feet, doors opening on their own, whistling being heard when no one can be found, and other unexplained occurrences. But as noted on the plaque in front of the hotel, as long as the British flag flies over the hotel, the ghost of Captain Swayze sticks to the lower levels not the guest rooms, of course. Uh, and well, he remains bathrooms. He remains harmless. Oh, don't worry, I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> and on you September, know I have an issue with bathrooms and ghosts because <laughs> they they're always there. They're always in bathrooms. I almost just like is there just like a you're at your most vulnerable in a bathroom, so like that's where people are most scared. There has to be something uh, to it. Like why are ghosts always in bathrooms? So on September 5th of 2020, the ghost of Captain Swayze was actually caught on camera. Um, there's a picture on the inn's website. And of course, we'll post it on Instagram. I'm also going to send it to Laura right now so she can view it since we're recording remotely. I can't show it to her in person. Okay, I just sent it. Um, but the story behind the photo while you're receiving it is that on September 6th, while the staff was doing routine checkups and maintenance, they noticed that a motion sensor was set off during the night. And when they reviewed the footage, they were shocked to see a ghostly figure wearing a militia officer's uniform. Have you gotten the picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking at it. I Does mean, it look like a ghost in a militia uniform? <laughs> I mean, I, I could see where one might see that. <laughs> like, 
but it could also just be some figments of light. Yeah. I don't know. Like, there's part of me, like, if I saw something that looked like that walking at me in real life, I might be like, oh, yeah, shit, that was a ghost. But, like, in a picture like this, I'm like, I don't know. I've seen orbs on pictures before. Yeah. Like, it could have been, like, a bug. Then somehow the light play, that set off the motion detector or a mouse set off the motion detector. And then there was, like, a weird flash of light. Like, could be so many things. But, like, yes, do I see, like, what they're um, assuming are the stripes of his uniform? Okay, I can kind of make those out. Yeah. And maybe that's supposed to be a trifold hat at the top. Like, I guess I kind of see it. Like, if you really wanted to believe that that was a ghost, you could see, like, where they're coming from. Exactly. So we will definitely post that, and you guys can let us know what you think. But I was able to grab some more descriptions of ghostly encounters from torontoghost.org. Uh, one woman said, quote, there is supposed to be a presence in the downstairs washroom area or bathroom. So we made a point of visiting the washrooms. My husband didn't notice, notice anything of consequence. But in the ladies room, I distinctly saw a shadow move while I was washing my hands. I know I was alone. Of course, the men's bathroom was fine. But the woman's bathroom apparently is not. Uh, Then she said, back in our room, we fell asleep around 12. At one, we were both awoke to some noises downstairs in the pub. I didn't know what time it was. And my husband trying to scare me told me it was 4 a.m. We both knew the pub closed and they didn't and they did their cleanup just after 1 a.m. Of course, after he confessed the real time, it was obvious that the noises were just the staff closing up for the night and we both fell back asleep. The irony of the story is that at 4 a.m., we were both awoken again by an awful lot of noise downstairs. It sounded like tables being moved and thumped around. Things even hit the ceiling directly below us. These noises went on for a good half an hour, thumping and bumping. It slowly died down in the way a thunderstorm dies down, the odd bump and thump continuing on after the main ruckus had stopped. Let me tell you how scary that was. In the morning, we made a point of asking what had happened there overnight. The morning staff told us that after closing at 1 a.m., no one was in the pub until morning. I asked specifically about the previous night, and they insisted no one was there. Another woman, who was pregnant at the time, had gone downstairs to the bathroom. Fucking bathroom. And when she was going back up to the pub, she said, quote, When I looked up, a man was standing on the third step. He tipped his hat and motioned for me to go upstairs. I said I won't fit. He did the motion again. I surprisingly fit beside him, and when I turned around to say thanks, no one was there. In May of 2002, she went back, and she said that she went to the bathroom with her son. Uh, A man appeared and tipped his hat. My son said he had no feet. I told him, don't be rude, but when I looked back, he was gone. Um, I also read part of a book on Google Books called World's Most Haunted Places by Jeff Bellinger. Uh, who wrote that Captain Swayze still holds a grudge against the Americans and he'll often cause kegs of American beer to malfunction uh, while allowing British and Canadian ales to work properly. (laughs) Screw those American beers. (laughs) They killed him. He also wrote that occasionally a red-coated man is seen in the reflection in the mirror of the ladies' room. Because, of course, like, why do they always have to be in the ladies' room every time? I'm not here for that. I know. You're just washing your hands. You look up, and there's a red coat behind you. 
it, he, he'd probably do it to us too because we're American. So he'd be pissed. Yeah. <laughs> One story in the book told by an employee named Laura uh, said that while closing one night alone, she went down to do keg inventory. Uh, and then she went to the staff bathroom outside of the cellar door. She says, as I was doing my business, somebody started whistling a tune outside the stall. So I did the whole hello, hello thing. No one. I don't hear anyone walking. And it's an old building. So you can hear people coming up and down the stairs, especially if no one else is there. I hurried up, opens the door, but I didn't hear anyone running away. No doors swinging. There was just no one there. Just creepy whistling. Another story tells of how the bartender at the pub one night after closing heard someone in the dining room, but after chasing in, no, found no one, uh, but all the silverware on the tables was scattered. And before the flag was hung to, you know, keep him downstairs, Guests had reported waking up to cap the captain staring at them at eye level, floating halfway through the floor. Like what would they would wake up and he like, but it was almost like he floated through the floor. So like the top part of his body was there and his eyes were just right at your face, staring at you. That's creepy. Yeah, I don't like that. So according to TorontoGhost.org, the current owners offer a certificate to any person spending a night in their haunted inn. Uh, you could show it off. And it says it's like to commemorate the fact that you had the nerve to share your evening with the ghostly footsteps of one Captain Swayze. Uh, several psychics have visited the inn over the years, including one who at first felt no activity in the dining room. But after being taken down to the cellar, she became overwhelmed and began to cry. She claims that there were so many spirits down there. So not just Captain Swayze. Lots of spirits. Wow. And like just rum and vodka and gin. Yeah. <laughs> there are indeed a lot of spirits down there. And just a fun fact that more recently, people have reported hearing a ghost cat at the door of their rooms at the inn. <laughs> Which, like, if I'm going to be haunted by a ghost, I'd much rather it be a ghost cat than a person ghost. This is true. <laughs> Um, in 2015, the inn celebrated its 200th anniversary, dating from the rebuild in 1815, not the original opening of 1789. And to mark the occasion, Lord Mayor Pat Date and Councillor Betty DeSero presented the owners, Nancy Penman and Barry Williams, with a commemorative plaque. Uh, the Lord Mayor Pat, oh wait, maybe it's Dart, not Date, sorry. I have it written both ways. It's one of those <laughs> said during the exhibit, quote, having been established in 1789 and being rebuilt in 1815 following the war of 1812, the Angel Inn has stood the test of time. It is Ontario's oldest operating inn. This is certainly a momentous milestone and our community is so fortunate to have many well-established businesses such as the Angel Inn that have made such a lasting impact in our community and respect our unique heritage and culture. And that is the Old Angel Inn and our good friend, Captain Swayze. Oh. Yeah. So my sources were the Old Angel Inn's website. Uh, again, the book World's Most Haunted Places by Jeff Bellinger. Um, and then the TorontoGhost.org website and an article from Hamilton News called Celebrating 200 Years of the Old Angel by Melinda Cheevers. Nice. Yeah. 
All right. And now is that time where we're going to talk about a Canadian cocktail. Uh, and it's actually a repeat cocktail because we have talked about this one in the past in our Bloody Mary episode, if you want to go back and give that a listen. But this week's cocktail is the Bloody Caesar. Woo! It is one that we will not be trying. I'm just going yeah. <laughs> to... Yeah, we might be trying some of the cocktails from the season. Not this one. <laughs> I honestly thought that the cocktail this week, like when you when we researched what the national cocktail for Canada was, it was going to be a maple syrup based yeah. something. Like a maple syrup. And then it was... Yeah. And then it ended up being the Bloody Caesar, which... We somehow have already covered, but yep. basically it is a Bloody Mary made the way you want to make it, except instead of just tomato juice, you have to add clam juice as well, or like Clamato juice, which they do sell. It's obviously mm-hmm. very popular. Some uh, people are into it. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I, you're not a big Bloody Mary person ever. Yeah, that's true. Would you try one? Oh, I would try it. It's not going to be like your go-to, but. Well, no, I mean, because I have to really be in the mood for a Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. And I do like them on occasion. But then the idea of adding like the seafoody taste to it takes it down a notch for me. But I would try it for sure. <laughs> but I wouldn't want it in the morning. It doesn't feel brunchy to me. Yeah. I would want it when I'm, like, eating, like, fried shrimp and, like, fresh fish on, like, a deck in Florida. Yeah. Maybe, like, That's, a later brunch. Like, a 2 p.m. Yeah. brunch, you know? Maybe, like, yeah. lunch, lunchy brunch. Yeah. A Clamato, <laughs> like, Bloody Mary does not go with eggs or French toast. Oh, my God. The idea of having <laughs> it with French toast. That sounds so horrific. (laughs) But, you know, I love a Bloody Mary. I love how individualized they can be. You want celery. You want, like, hot sauce, carrot sticks. You want to put a whole lobster claw in there. You you make it as intricate as you want. But to make the Canadian national cocktail, it just has to have that clam juice in there. Yep. Just simple clam juice. (laughs) Again, all the ingredients are probably in your house or a very quick run to a grocery store. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many people have clam juice or clamato juice in their house, but, but you could find it. You can find it. You'd be surprised. I'm sure. (laughs) But we will put a recipe for a Caesar up on our Instagram uh, and Twitter. Yes. We're also going to share pictures from our trip to Chicago, as well as pictures from this week's stories in Canada. So make sure you're following us on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. And like I said, at the top of the episode, we're looking for you to give us ideas of countries, uh, ideas of things that you want to hear in general, because, you know, for a future season, we'll obviously be doing a different topic. Uh, So shoot us an email, tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. And until next week. Cheers. Cheers.